welcome to The Sound of the Hound. Series 2. The podcast about the early days of recorded sound. In it, we talk about the recording pioneers and artists who created the modern music industry over 100 years ago. We look at the sometimes ridiculous lengths they went to to capture sound and the technology they used in order to do it. We come from the point of view of spirited amateurs. Yes, we're very much armchair enthusiasts. And we play a little scratchy music along the way. This podcast comes to you with the support of the EMI Archive Trust, the Music and Technology Archive. This is the sound of the hound. <laughs> Welcome to the sound of the hound. I'm James Hall. I'm Dave Holly. Now, now, slight apology today. My voice has gone a bit odd. He's a bit croaky. I don't know why. A bit croaky. But, um, I, it claims not to have had a large one last night. It, it does sound like you've been burning I, the candle. I wrote a Cliff Richard review. Oh, well, maybe well, that's maybe... <laughs> exhausting. It was, uh, no, I, I, anyway, so apologies. But um, welcome to this episode. And today we're going to talk about an executive from the Gramophone Company. Now, don't let that put you off because it's a really interesting story. And it all starts in December 1897 in a hotel on the Strand called Hotel Cecil, which was a brand new, very smart hotel. Quite ostentatious. Clearly competing with uh, the Strand. Just the Savoy. The, uh, the, sorry, the Savoy. The Savoy. Yes, Savoy yeah, on the yeah, yeah, yeah. I beg your pardon. With the Savoy. Um, well, apparently, which, apparently I was looking up the Strand at that point. I saw a quote. It was Europe's premier shopping street. It is. It is very high, and it's Bond Street plus plus at that point. Because the Savoy was the first hotel in London to have electric light. So I wonder if the Cecil was competing on that, and the first one with a uh, with an elevator. How do you know these because things? Because I was searching my <laughs> book. Um, they called the moving rooms. Anyway, so we're in we're in the Hotel Cecil, which is a rather splendid and huge building, and the man pacing around. In a room in the Hotel Cecil is... He's an American. He's is, called William Barry Owen. William sounds like he should be a Welshman with Barry William Owen. Barry Owen. He does, but he's, he's an American man. And he'd arrived in London and he was keen to raise some money. Dave, can you tell us why? Well, he, yeah, he's... I mean, you could call him... Well, it's the big bang of the UK recording industry, this, this guy arriving. He's, he's been given the job by uh, Emil Berliner, who invented the gramophone, to come over and sell gramophones and records to shops that were already selling phonographs, the old cylinders, and also to look for investors to take on the European rights to exploit the gramophone and make recordings. And uh, do, do we know how old he was at this point? I, I do. He's thir- 37 years 37. old. And his background is what? He, well, we have various sources that we refer to all the time. One of them is Gerald Northrop Moore's biography of Fred Geisberg. He described Fred him Dick. as a legal assistant to Frank Seaman. Now, Frank Seaman's a quite important character in this. In America, Berlin had invented the gramophone, and he, he retained ownership of all the patents. But he'd passed on the development of the company to the sort of tech wizard Eldridge Johnson, yeah. um, who, who was the guy that um, had the idea. Well, Fred might have had the idea, but he's the guy that put the, the motor, motor yes. into a gramophone. So it was, it, 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 you didn't wind it yeah, up, it and, it just, up and, and it just you know, changed speed and as, as, very as it ran out sound. of thing. A bit like my voice kind yeah. of going up and down. And then the yeah. third key person was Frank Seaman, and he was given the rights well, he bought the rights from Berliner to sell and market gramophones. And this was all over in America? All over in pr- America. Prior to this, okay. Yeah. And William Barrow Owen works for, for Frank Seaman, but they're all kind of colleagues at this yeah. point. They all fall out in a, in a, in a little while, but uh, they're all colleagues. And 
Gerald says he's a legal assistant. He actually trained as a lawyer. He, well, he read law at Amherst, okay. um, but never, never practiced. But Peter Martland, in his exhaustive uh, history of well, the record industry at this point says he was the sales director of Siemens okay. company. So he's a sales guy. There is a great quote from Geisberg, just to get an idea of the sort of guy he is. Yeah. Um, so Fred, remembering him late in life when he's writing his memoirs, said, Berliner could have selected no finer agent than Owen to exploit his invention. And he describes Owen as an opportunist of quick decision and a bold gambler. You would always find him sitting at the stiffest game of poker in the smoking room. And I love this bit. His eyes would bulge as he laid out a full house on the table. <laughs> and Fred says, um, Owen brought to London infectious enthusiasm and energetic leadership, which Fred believed was quite new to the conservative English city man of that day. How interesting. Okay. And so he's checked into what is probably one, if not the most expensive hotel in London. And it's where the Shell Mex uh, house now is. It was knocked down in 1930, mm. apparently, this hotel. But he's there to make himself look opulent and grand, isn't he? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a startup looking for investment, yeah. basically. But on the other hand, he's, he's out flogging gramophones and discs directly to shops. And he's doing quite all right at that. But I don't think it's allowing him to live in the Hotel Cecil permanently, which he does for months. <laughs> as he um, tries to get money. As he tries to get money. But in December 1897, he entices a real Welshman, Trevor Trevor Williams, Trevor Lloyd Williams. Oh, I'm sorry, Edmund Trevor Lloyd Williams. Oh, Edmund. Apparently. Many, many first names. <laughs> and Trevor Williams. In, interesting, Trevor is a lawyer. He's he was a, a lawyer from Lincoln's Inn. Yeah. And he, so it's strange that, you know, the guy's a lawyer who's come over, or trained as a lawyer, yeah. and he's trying to get money, and he can't. He can't find investors for love of money. And then he, go, he befriends this guy from. In fact, I think he's. I think he meets Williams because he's been handed a contract from the head office yeah. to cover his deal while he's in the UK, and he goes and gets some advice from Williams, oh, and Williams advises him not to sign it, <laughs> but said he would be interested in investing. In it, and that's that's how Williams enters the. the, the it's, scene. it's it's quite reassuring, really. That you know, we've been talking a lot about all these creative types. That actually, you've got some serious legal brains yeah. behind this endeavour, haven't yeah. you? And and interesting, you know, William Barry Owen was thirty-seven. He he he'd been married for ten years at this point. So, I think he's over here on his own. I think he's staying in the hotel. He's desperately getting this venture off the ground. His his wife and kids do come over later. Let's talk about that but, picture. This day has just revealed this incredible photo. Fantastic we'll put it picture. On the website. Which yeah, it's it's. I'm guessing it's because when his kids came over, the the boys were four and six, and he's, he's got an older daughter. I can't work okay. out what her age is. So I think a, they're about five and seven there. So there's a photo of, of Williams in a um, sorry Barry Owen in a in a three piece suit, and his two sons. The, the the one on the right is dressed as a beef eater and like a proper fancy dress beef eater outfit with yeah. the ruff and the pole and the hat and the and the son to his left is is dressed in in as a Scots guard with a beautiful kilt with a massive sporran and a huge sort of tartan cape. Um, he's clearly got you know full British fancy dress yeah, to send but, back to his kids. I, I bet it's I bet it's to send back to the relatives in the states. And these were I mean they look beautifully made. These were lovely. So he's obviously very expensive. Very outfits expensive. Have been hired for this, I would think. Um, but he does look quite a serious man. Yeah, he looks uh, quite very grumpy. Own. Very grumpy. Um, but hey, so what happens? So he meets stern and severe. He meets Williams. They do a deal. They do a deal. Um, it was, it was discussed in 1897, in December. They, they sort of, 
spit and shake hands on it, but they don't actually sign the deal until February. And Fred Geisberg isn't over here yet. No, Fred's it? still Fred's, working this for is Berliner. Just pre-Fred. Yeah, Fred's working for Ber- Berliner in, in a, an American recording studio, the first ever record, gramophone recording studio in Philadelphia at this point. And, uh, and it's really, I keep saying it's really interesting. I find it really interesting. <laughs> you find it interesting. But Trevor Williams had some business interests in the States. So after December 9, 1897, Trevor Williams in January and February goes over to America right. on business. And William Barrione follows him, pursuing him to conclude the deal. He's, he's desperate. He God, doesn't want Williams to get away. He's keen, isn't he? He's really keen. And, and, um, did, 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 how much money did Williams put up? Do we know? It was £5,000 to start off with. Okay, which yeah. sounds quite a lot. Yeah, Berlin has sent him over looking for 100000 Okay, all right. So it, it's the first seed money is 5000 Then yeah. I think they brought more money in. He brought, yeah. he brought in a, a friend of his called Edgar Storey, who was a, a Liverpudlian colliery owner. Okay. So I wonder if the, if the colliery's in Wales, like Trevor Williams, but the... Um, the the guy I think had been at Cambridge with Williams, and he put he, he ended up taking over seventy five percent of ownership of the Gramophone Company, which is what comes out of when they finally do sign a deal. Seventy five percent is shared between Trevor Williams and Edgar Story, okay, and then twenty five percent goes to William Barry Owen. So he's the three of them own the company, and they and really interesting Barry Owen, William Barry Owen thinks that the Gramophone is going to be a very short lived thing. Yes, now I want to talk about this. So his What's his kind of business plan? What do you think he says to people when they go and meet him and ask him about investing? What's his kind of spiel? Get rich quick. <laughs> well, at least that's what was in his mind. Is it's a it's a huge novelty. It's taken off in America. People want it. People are already buying the phonograph. It's a proven market. This is much better technology. It sounds better. And but it's still a novelty. It's still a novelty. He thinks, and so he's saying, you know, all we all we've got. It's a simple business, Trevor. All you've got to do is put the money up. We buy the uh, gramophones from America, from Eldridge Johnson, and we buy the discs from Frank Seaman. And and you don't have to do anything. It's just that. Trevor Williams, though, thinks, hang on a minute, this isn't going to work. The supply chain, yeah. is that going to work? And he insists they put in a, a clause that says if the, if the supply chain breaks down, they can manufacture in, in um, Europe. And he also says, no, 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 no. Europe is a series of different markets, and we're going to need local repertoire. We right. can't just have so, American repertoire. So, right. So this, is, so it was, it was Williams who said we yeah. need to get someone, someone over here to build our library. Yeah, and and, God, so and Barry Owen really was just in it for the. He's in it for building the building the business and and making as much money as he can quickly. And the deal said that Berliner had to send over a recording agent, aka Mr. That's Mr. when Mr. Geisberg Fred, Mr. Fred comes. And, and, um, yeah. So let's talk about the sort of Barry Owen's sort of big business call so he gets the money what's the first thing he does they invest in a studio correct they set up it's a partnership rather than a, a, a company. company and the partnership has a, has funds it's called the gramophone company but it's a partnership and the, 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 the name remains the same but it chain, it mutates into a proper limited company by yeah. the end the, the first thing that they do is actually order loads of stock from America. So they order 150,000 records and 3,000 uh, machines. So they can get they the can start going. selling yeah. it. That's to get stock in. They then get a, a recording expert sent over. Yeah. And then they take out a lease on 31, 31 Maiden, Maiden Lane. Lane. Grimy. Yeah. Grimy. That's Dirty. Fred, Fred's first impression was that it was pretty grimy. A grimy studio. Yeah. So so Trevor Williams becomes chairman. Yeah. And William Barry Owen becomes managing director. The first thing William Barry Owen does is hire a guy called 
Theodore Bernard Birnbaum. Right. We've, so, heard, but, yeah, we've, we've spoken about Birnbaum yeah, before, haven't we? Birnbaum, basically his job was to go and set up dealerships everywhere. Yeah. So he sets up uh, offices in across the Europe and he sets up uh, dealerships in um, in each country. And Birnbaum, is, he's 33 years old, yeah. Islington-born, marries well. He's, he marries to the daughter of the King's solicitor. He comes from a business background and he, he's actually an import-export specialist. Okay. And all the way while he's working for the the gramophone company, he's, he's got that business on the on the side, and they're, they're they're successful to start off with. They 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 sell an absolute shed load of stuff. They they buy from uh, Frank Seaman, yeah. but they also pay a royalty back to to the patent holder to to Berliner. Okay, so, so they're sending lots America, of funds back. Yeah. Now at this point, the relationship between Berliner, Eldridge Johnson, and Seaman breaks down and they all fall out and they're yeah. all suing each other over who owns what. Well, it's lucky they're lawyers. I mean, surely when you launch a business, you, you have to create something. You can't just be a middleman, which is what Barry Owen was wanting to do initially. Hence getting Fred over, hence starting the repertoire. And was he supportive of Fred? I mean, did he did he let Fred? Because when they recorded Caruso, wasn't he told, don't do it? Well, yeah, but that's, if, if, you, if you go back to our recording, that was a myth. That, that that he was never told he's never told not to do it. And in fact, I was reading about Barry Owen. Do, do you remember there were two executives over in um, Rome yeah. who went to the opera yeah. um, and, and couldn't got kicked out of the box that, that the Italian agent had got for yes, them. Yes, yes. So they were there at the time that, that the recording of Caruso was going on, and it was William Barry Owen and his wife, oh, so they were... <laughs> and um, and Alfred Clark. Okay, and his wife. Okay, so, so they were so, broadly supportive. They weren't these kind of penny pinching. No, and 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 William Barry Owen takes the business from an idea. Yeah. To by the time he leaves, it's an international business with offices across the. Yeah. And and huge amounts of repertoire that dwarfs the repertoire that's been made in yeah. America. But he did make as a boss. What can we call them? Strategic blunders, misjudgments. Yeah, I think so. Because um, the, the, the company took off in Maiden Lane, and they moved in 1902, didn't they? They moved across to City Road. Yeah. I mean, there's a few things sort of happened in, in 1902. One, one of them, it might actually be 1901, is back to his little faith in, in the gramophone, the long-term um, potential of the gramophone. He actually says, no, let's diversify. And he moves into... Typewriters. That's right. Typewriters. <laughs> Which is, so they became the gramophone and typewriter. Changed company. the name of the company. Yeah. I, I can kind of see why you hedge your bets. You you you, yeah. you you sit on two horses, as it were. But um typewriters and and gramophone those, those industries must have been going in completely different directions in that the gramophone was went from a very small base to I can't imagine the typewriter was or you can be that inventive with a typewriter, I suppose, is what I'm saying. Yeah. I, making music was was such a a huge thing to do, and he couldn't see the value in it. No, or, 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 or certainly was sceptical about was it. sceptical about the value in it. Maybe he wasn't into music. You know, maybe possibly, yeah. possibly. And if, also, if I was Fred Geisberg, I'd be, I'd be pissed off if I was. You know, can I have a word, Fred? <laughs> By yeah. the way, this great new invention, and you're going around the world, nearly getting killed, yeah. recording all these people. But but we're but, moving into typewriters. Yeah, but but yeah, I I, I wonder how they thought. It. I suppose it, the company was getting big. It was getting very successful yeah. at, at selling records. It, it, it was booming, and it was, you know, the gramophone business was almost strangled at birth in America while all the lawsuits were going yeah. on, and the money sent back from the UK basically kept it kept it going. Do you think it was a supplier thing that they the retailers that they sold their stock to wanted? 
them to diversify. And I, I know a lot of gramophone retailers sold bicycles as well. I don't know why, but there are lots of photos of shops with gramophones and bicycles. Well, uh, well actually, you know, I, I work for Wise Music. Yeah. And Wise Music it, it used to be called Music Sales, and we changed the name early this year. But it goes back three or four generations in New York, and we've got a, a kind of foundation picture of the initial shop that Mr. Wise of three or four generations back had. Yeah. And in the front window is records for sale and bikes for sale. There you go. So that's spooky there that you, you said that, but that well, absolutely they sell both. Very, so very strange. Perhaps that's... When I was young, I used to buy my records from a shop that largely, largely sold white goods. They basically, you know... The, the, what was it? What was it called? It, it, I think it was called Rumbelows. Rumbelows. Yeah. Well, and it, it, yes. it had white goods then and then a record counter. So, yeah. you, so your mum went and bought a, a fridge and, and you went, and, to, you went and, well, and I remember Boots. Boots the Chemist. Boots the Chemist. Used song. to have a yeah. huge record selection. So diversification is, um, you know, yeah, not, no, not a bad uh, idea. But in 19... So, so you did decided to diversify and you know I'm not going to spoil anything by telling you it fails <laughs> it doesn't succeed put it that way and 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 quietly after he departs the company it's the name is changed back to the gramophone company and typewriters have forgotten uh, forgotten but um, um city Road, should we do a dis- should we describe yeah. should we describe that that building yeah this was for a time the most high tech super duper best kitted out state-of-the-art recording studio in the world. Yeah, high-tech. In 1902. Yeah. It was extremely high-tech. Remember, they weren't recording with electricity yet, so it was all acoustic. Yep. But there's a wonderful description, should I read this? Yeah, 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 it's great. And forgive me um, for my voice. Um, So Maiden Lane was becoming obsolete. Um, They moved to City Road, which interestingly is now a tech startup hub, Silicon Roundabout. And it's it's the City Road of the song. Yeah, yes. Oh, you're not going to make me sing it. Yeah, come on. Up and down the city road, in and out the eagle. That's the way the money goes. Goes the weasel. Yes. Pop goes the weasel. We, we went to have a look at we it, We went to have a look separately, because yeah. we're that geeky and odd. But we went, and, and it's opposite the Eagle Pub. They've you taken, I had a pint, I'm, and I looked at where the, the bu- bu- building would have been. Unfortunately, it's not there anymore, is it? No. It's, it's offices, uh, sort of modern-ish offices. Um, so here we are in City Road, and the, the um, building at 21 City Road, it's a huge advance over Maiden Lane. And this is what Fred says of it. Here in the gramophone laboratory, practically every variety of sound-producing instrument is available. Two pianos, a large mustel organ, church chimes of all sizes, a variety of drums, horns, strings instruments, and all manner of equipment for producing descriptive records, together with horns for receiving sound of every size and shape. So effectively, so the studio is at the very top floor. In fact, there's a picture that we'll put on the website, um, the top one there, that it's, it shows all of those different instruments. I, can I just do my Beatles titbit here? Of course, do your Beatles so, titbit. So there are several great sort of academics who write about this period. Uh, one guy that I've read a few bits by that I really enjoy is Peter Adamson. And in, in an article, he said, he's got a quote from George Martin. I think it was from the book. George wrote a book about recording of Sergeant Peppers and he said this is a quote one of the last and unusual ad- additions to When I'm 64 the song on Abbey Road uh, on um, Sergeant Peppers was the sound of chimes you just mentioned the yeah, chimes yeah. and in the picture you can see the chimes Abbey Road Studios always had a collection of percussion instruments lying around and Ringo could not stop himself having a go at them so the chimes used on When I'm 64 I think because Dave used to run Abbey Road, so Dave knows yeah. the boxes of stuff that were lying around. Yeah. 
that they've gone. The chimes, the chimes aren't there anymore, anyway, sadly. But there, you're, you're... there were lots of instruments, and there are still lots of instruments there, and they would have inherited them. So, so Abbey Road, the, the, the studio before Abbey Road would have been at Hayes, at Hayes. and, and the studio before that would have been at City, City Road. Road yeah. And I'm sure all the instruments would have been packed up and moved on to the next studio. How amazing! So, so the, the chimes he's describing in in City Road. W- Went on to went on. and actually, I got there. I'm afraid that was a journalist who described it, not Fred. But there's yeah. a he then describes the studio. The recording room is at the top of the building and has been so situated in order to remove it as far as possible from the din and turmoil of the street traffic on the busy city road, which makes sense. Logical, it's very clever. Yeah. It is lighted by means of skylights. Stretching from one end of the room is a glass partition, behind which is placed the recording machine. The recording horn into which the singers sing, projects through about the centre of this partition. In the, in the construction of this room, every possible means has been utilised to cure its perfection from an acoustic point of view. Yeah. So they've, they've split the, they've split uh, the room control half. room effect where, you re, where you're cutting the recording and the, from the performing from the room, room, the live room. So this is yeah. the first instance that we've read about where, yeah, like you say, first control room. So behind this glass partition... The engineers would, yeah. would stand, and, and and then in front of it, singing into the horn, would be the performer and the music, yeah. the musicians. And, and we're actually recording this. Unusually, we often do it at each other's homes, but we're recording this today in the recording studio at the bottom of, of my business's building. Yeah. And we're sitting in the live area, and we're looking through a glass screen, and we can see the recording equipment. So it's this is how recording studios look. Yeah. And and thanks the to, C- City, thanks Road, to City Road is probably designed by Fred. And, and funded by William Barry Owen. And for, when it opened, Fred was away recording. He was in the Far East, I think, wasn't he, in 1990? Mm. But Caruso was just taking off. Yeah. And, and Fred returned to London from, uh, from his recording trip. He found the City Road office in a whirl of preparation. Um, Shall we have some music from City Road, actually? Yeah. Let's do this. This was um, the one I think we're going to play is... It's a young tenor called John Harrison, who apparently is very nervous. And demanded, which he would be if he'd never done this before, Absolutely. demanded that everyone left the room. But he did a song called uh, Comfort Ye My People from the Messiah. And we're going to play it now. That's what the um, high tech studio sounds like in 1902. It's quite mournful, wasn't it? Yeah. It, it? And it was more than a studio, wasn't it? it, it I think there were several floors of, to the building, and they they <laughs> yes, had um, a factory in there. So, so they used to import the parts for the gramophones, but then assembled them. So they had a sort of factory floor where they'd do the assembling. It was a yes, it was a one stop shop, really, yeah. wasn't it? We put these pictures upon the. Well, on, they, didn't, on, they didn't manufacture. They didn't press the records there yet, did no. they? No. Well, the way where they made the records was in Hanover in um, Germany, but they they would there was like a stock room and they would pick the um the orders in 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 um city road and ship them off and you can see 
ladies ladies doing that all it's it's very gender specified oh, yeah, the so division of labor is, yeah. is is quite old fashioned so so la- ladies are, are doing the record picking gentlemen are doing the assembling and the offices are sort of a mixture of the two and what's interesting is journalists are now a involved and b fascinated so there's there are a lot of playbacks to journalists there are a lot of recordings in front of members of the press yeah. aren't there because this has now become a thing caruso's just taken off the company's big and popular it's, bo- oh, it's booming it's booming, it's booming. But there was a problem with City Road, wasn't there, Dave? Yeah. By the, by the time they'd moved in, and, and it looks like they were, were designed to move in in very early 1902, but actually it's staged. There's some cl- clerks move in early, yeah. according to Peter Adamson, and, and actually the studio doesn't get up and running till till the autumn or certainly late summer. And by the time they moved in, they realised it's too small. <laughs> so, so even um, even before they they moved in, I think I think they the board approved it in 1901, and they move in in 1902. And by 1902, there's too many people in the business, um, and they need to take out warehousing space nearby to put all the parts that come in and. There's another little office around the corner that they, they take on. It's it's too small. But this growth has been exponential, hasn't it? I mean, they've gone yeah. from nothing in four years, yeah, four and a bit years, to too huge with with international superstars and yeah. offices across Europe and recordings from all those countries. So was this a was this a stain on on William on um, William Barry Owen's reputation? Do you think? I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's it's clearly a bit of a cock up. But I guess when you're managing startups, which which I did once, you know, you run out of space very quickly because you you get money in and then you realise ah we need somebody doing that and then yeah. you get that and then you you overspill and if they're growing as quickly as it looks like, certainly from their sales, yeah. then I don't think it's it's I don't think you can blame him, but but it it could be a bit of an expensive mistake. Yeah. But yeah. you know, they, the next thing they do is they decide to build a campus um, out in, in Hayes. Hayes. Which and, is still there. It's an incredible campus. It's huge. Yeah, I mean, they yeah. made up for their for their space era in space, didn't they? Because it's absolutely massive. Yeah, and I mean that campus. I think at its peak had twenty thousand people working on it. And it was a factory. It was a place. It's now being turned into luxury flats. Kind yeah, of. The, but it's called what's it called the vine the, the vinyl factory. The vinyl factory. Yeah, it's That's, an amazing. Complex. It's only one part of the campus. The, the, yeah. There's still bits and bobs still there. A lot of it's been knocked down. And um, this is where the EMI Archive Trust Archive is yeah. in Hayes, just around the corner. But that's it. that. Yeah, it is. It's the last bit that's owned by EMI. By EMI. Yeah, yeah. And it, yeah, it's like an industrial. It's a huge industrial kind of. But that's the thread, trajectory they're on here. Yeah. So, so, so you know, him him getting the calculations slightly wrong. I don't. I don't think it's. I mean, it's probably quite expensive. His mistake, but uh, yeah. But yeah. Uh, you know, because he had to kit out all these rooms and make them fit for purpose, and then move within. Five years, and was he happy? Do you think? Did he have his family? No, I, he, well, it's, his family come over because we can see the pictures of them in um, in their their British uniforms. The boys, yeah, and he had a daughter, and I know that um, Fred used to take her to the, the theatre, yeah, and to to listen to concerts. So they're over, but he seems to he seems to be in a real hurry. He's, you know, he's he's a gambler. We, yeah. you know, we had that. You wouldn't assume that many lawyers are, are big gamblers. Well, he didn't go into practice law, did he? He did law at um, oh, that's true at, that's at college, true. and maybe that's the reason. He's, yeah. he, and and I think really between sort of nineteen hundred, nineteen oh three, yeah, they're they're still working out how to manage this business. Yeah, and really, it's only by about nineteen oh two, nineteen oh three that you've got a proper functioning board yeah. who are starting to question his decisions. Yeah, so I think he's a bit of a free spirit and doesn't like that. Yeah, he's cocked up a little bit City Road. He's also made three separate attempts to try and buy the American companies 
that actually... Is that Victor? Yeah, during this time, they've coalesced all of Seaman, Berliner, and Johnson's rights in in the gramophone in America has come into Victor Records. So you now have two massive record companies, the gramophone company in Europe and Victor in America, and he tries to buy it on three separate occasions. And fails. And it doesn't. They they just can't agree a price in the third and final effort, but it would have made a huge company and got rid of all sorts of problems. But I suppose, look, it's very easy in retrospect... To look back and go, oh, he shouldn't have done that, shouldn't have done that. But at the time, he obviously did them because he thought they were the right things to do. Thought he'd succeed. And he didn't fail as such, did he? No. He still built one of the most amazing companies. And I think he was very conscious of how much he was being paid. So uh, one, of the, one of the reasons that you, you, know, you, you build companies is to take reward out of it at the other end. Yeah. And I think probably adding together Victor and the gramophone company would have given him shares in a hugely lucrative business that he would have been able to cash out on. And would have prevented, would it, the EMI-Columbia merger? In, well, it probably later. would in a few decades later, yeah. yeah. It, it, Which then went to become you, EMI and, and, and... Yeah, if you're going to do an history. alternative history thing, yeah. I guess if that if they, it did become the gramophone company, they probably... Because the reason I think the gramophone company and the company merged was because of the depression and yeah. people didn't buy records. But but maybe that would have been strong enough to stand on its own still. Yeah. Maybe it wouldn't. Maybe it would still need to have merged. So... Before we kind of conclude with what, what happened to him, and where, should we have one more recording from City Road? Yes, please. This is a genius violin player called Mishka Elman, who's a Russian-born American Jewish violinist. And it's a, an extract from Faust. Now, at the time, records could only record for three and a half-ish, well, depending on their size, uh, minutes. And this piece was too long. So Elman chopped it in half and added a cadenza, a sort of flourish at the end of the first half to make it sound like it was a complete piece which, of course, it wasn't. And when he had finished it, uh, he turned to Landon Ronald, our old, old friend on the piano, who said it was very good. And, and, and Elman said, yes, it will do, but it's not Faust. It is Faust decomposed. Um, so here we have Elman playing from Faust. And I don't know whether this is the song with a cadenza, I'm afraid. But um, here it is. It's rather lovely. I thought that was lovely. Yeah. And the, the, the quality's good, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it, it's a step up from from the really scratchy, opaque stuff from Maiden Lane, isn't it? Yeah. No, it's, it's, that's very nice too. Um, so where have we got to? So Owen tries to do all these things, tries yeah. to buy Victor, fails. And then, and then the last thing that he tries to do is get a pay rise. And it, what what he's after is uh, a percentage of the profits rather than a, uh, than a salary, salary, which would have quadrupled... Yeah whatever's a bigger number than quadrupled, the amount of money that he would have taken. Quintupled. And he has to write to Johnson to beg yeah. or request slash beg for um, uh, this this uh, pay rise or this way of being paid. And it's turned down flat by the board. So it's, it's almost like the final way of him taking significant chunk of money out of this business. And he interestingly, he writes, so he's been doing this for about five years yeah. now. You know, he moved over without without his family, lived in a hotel for months, 
got it going, found investors, built yeah. it up, and the board are just holding him tight and not not giving him the reward he feels he's deserves. So really, we should he's, we should see him as the unsung hero. I mean, is that because Fred gets all the all the props? Doesn't yeah, he? absolutely. And and in in the, the when he found out that he didn't get the um, the pay rise, he wrote back to Johnson and said, "I do not care to have the wear and tear upon my health that I consider to be necessary in the next two or three years, unless I am certain that at the end of the time I shall have more money than I have at present." Wow. Um, and that was at the end of 1902. He's driving um, profits. So the the net profit, yeah. and he wanted 5% of this, was 80 grand in 1900. Yeah. And he got it to a quarter of a million in... So uh, what was this? What percentage? He, he wanted 5%. That's, so okay. that would be about 12,500 pounds. You know, Fred was on... A twelfth of that. Yeah. He was on, I think, around. Well, I'm not surprised they turned him down. Frankly, yeah. <laughs> I mean, <that's... laughs> but he's driven that that increased, you yeah. know, increased in sales. Yeah. You, he would argue. Um, so he, he's disappointed. There's also something else that's interesting: is competition is now coming into the into Europe, flooding in, yeah, flooding in. So that there's a, there's not only are the gramophones being manufactured in Europe, or things very that look and smell and work very similar to gramophones, even though they're not contravening the patents. Yeah. And they're being made in, in Germany and Switzerland, and, and they are so much better quality. So yeah. the sale of gramophones is dropping. Records is continuing to, 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 to climb. But there's a couple of companies that are really stepping on their toe. You've got Pathé in France. Pathé is now France. is now selling discs. Colombia. Um, you've Columbia. got Colombia that, that's relocated to the States yeah. as well. To Europe. Yeah, that's to Europe, sorry. Yeah. yeah. And and I, th- I think he's probably looking at all of this thinking, hang on a minute, you know, we've had a free run at all of this. Yeah. But suddenly we're going to have competition for signing writers uh, and, and singers and performers. Yeah. We're going to um, be competing to get into shops and shop space. He, he's always been a bit sceptical about the long-term history of yeah. this. I'm out. He get, he's out. I'm out. 1903, he, he cashes in his chips, sells off the, 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 the shares that he's got, decides to leave. It takes, it takes the year to, for him to exit. And interestingly enough, they all they go on holiday, the Owens, yeah. to, back to Cape Cod. Yeah. And Fred goes back in, in August for a, a month in um, the States and okay. goes and has a week with them and stays in their house in Cape Cod. This is after he's quit, is it? Or no, just we, as we, he's about? I think he's, I think he's given notice to the board, yeah. but hasn't actually left. Yeah. And I thought this was just a nice little story because he's, he's this sort of gambler. Yeah. But Fred, Fred says that um, they were all due to get the same boat back um, from the state. But Owen, he said he missed the boat. Fred says Owen missed the boat to Europe in order to watch a ball game between Martha's Vineyard Nine and the home team, his home team. <laughs> so he's, he's, he finds, it feels like he's, he's like lost his, interest slightly. Like, yes, his heart wasn't in it at all. He wasn't in going back. Um, but what a fascinating story. And had he held on for another 10 years, then, I mean, he could have really made a lot, couldn't he? Yeah, but I, I wonder if, you know, some people are very good at starting businesses yes. and some people are very good at running businesses, mature business. Sense, and maybe he just reached the end of his, his yeah. useful life in this thing. He gets replaced by Birnbaum, the guy that brought him in, and then ultimately gets replaced by Alfred Clark. He, go, he leaves and he, it's a very sad end to his life. Well, <laughs> in, in, all over the, um, the, the internet, there are references to him having returned to Martha's Vineyard. He goes back to the States, back yeah. to Cape Cod, and he's going there to keep chickens. That's, <laughs> that's what he said. But actually, Peter Martland's dug into it. It was, it was, it was an, 
agricultural venture is, is how it's described in in, in Martland's book. And he does fail. He makes an unsuccessful attempt to, to develop that. And then his, his fortune dissipates, it says. He, and he ended up living for the last 10 years of his life on a pension that was provided by Victor and the gramophone company. So they jointly... Gave him a gave it gave him a, a a pension to for him to live on in the dying in his dying days. So from, from rock stars to roosters. Yeah, and so he leaves in 1904 when he's he's 41 at that point. So he's still yeah a young. I'm 55. I think he's a young man. Ten years later, he dies on April the 19th, coincidentally my birthday, 1914. So just before the First World War yeah. kicks off, back in Martha's Vineyard where he where he was where born. He started. Sorry, no, he was 54, so he would have been 44 when he left the company and Gosh, 54 young, when he died. Yeah. How very, well, not sad, I mean, how amazing, but also what a, a sort of unsatisfactory ending, really. Yeah. So there you go, there is the story of William Barry Owen. Yeah. The unsung hero, the the kickstarter. He was definitely the, the entrepreneur the entrepreneur pulled this business together. And it all started in that posh hotel room. In, S- in Hotel, Hotel Cecil, Cecil in the Strand. December 1897. Yeah. Seven years later, he's gone. He's gone. Well, thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. The Sound of the Hound was edited by Andy Hetherington. For more details on the topics discussed in this episode, visit soundofthehound.com or follow us on Twitter on at the sound of the H1 or on Instagram on The Sound of the Hound.